Shalom Aleichem, and welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Ron Raboy and Alex Weiser. Ron was a senior researcher for Michael Tilson Thomas's Tomaszewski Project, for whom he developed the Yiddish theater musical reconstructions that MIT premiered at Carnegie's Zankel Hall in 2005. For many years, a cellist in both the San Diego Symphony and the San Diego Opera, Ron was also active in the earliest years of the West Coast Klezmer Revival. In 1995, the San Diego Jewish Film Festival commissioned his original score to Molly Pecan's early silent film, East and West. Other of his own music has been heard in New York, at MoMA, The Kitchen, as well as in California, a contributor to the Encyclopedia Judaica. Ron has held research fellowships and taught at Evo University and University of California, San Diego, and his writing on Yiddish film, literature, and theater music has appeared in academic journals and arts magazines. He has recently completed scholarly studies on Molly Bacon and on Yiddish theater composer Abraham Elstein. Alex Weiser is the director of public programs at the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research, where he curates and produces programs combining a fascination with and curiosity for historical context with an eye towards influential Jewish contributors to the culture of today and tomorrow. Born and raised in New York City, Alex is also an active composer of contemporary classical music. His debut album and All the Days Were Purple, was named a 2020 Pulitzer Prize finalist and cited as a, quote, meditative and deeply spiritual work whose unexpected musical language is arresting and directly emotional. Released by Cantaloupe Music in 2019, the album includes songs in Yiddish and English. Alex and Ron have collaborated to present a performance of the music of Shir Hashirim, The Song of Songs, a 1911 operetta by Joseph Ramczynski and Anshul Shore. Welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm going to ask you to identify yourselves when you first stop, ta- stop, start talking um, so that our listeners know um, who's speaking as I, as I pepper you with questions. So to begin with, I'd love to ask if you would talk a little bit about the history of the operetta and um, you note it was described as the first Yiddish operetta. Uh, this is Ron speaking. Um, let's see. It. I think that I think that quotation is um, leaves out a word. I think he said. I think he Rumshinsky called it the first modern Yiddish operetta, and um, by that he meant it was dealing with today's subjects things things that were cur- that were very current um psychologically as as well as you know in the plot but also uh, musically it was moving out of um uh folk motifs and and religious motifs and um uh, and was the aspiration was to be a European operetta. I mean, to Rumshinsky, that's what he meant. It's really kind of like a Viennese operetta. Uh, and, and that's what he was trying to do. And in fact, he he wanted to do operetta. And up until that point, he had been doing 
uh, he was kind of a music director and he was, so he was writing some incidental music and conducting the orchestra and making arrangements, things like that. But this was very early in his career and it, it wasn't the first one. There was uh, one called uh, Das Mädel von der West, the girl from the West had, had preceded it by a couple months. And that was, he called that the first comic uh, uh, operetta uh, on the Yiddish stage. And um, barring from your program introduction, Quote, in his memoirs, Rimshinsky wrote that he and Shore, who was also an innovator, were inspired in no small part by the profusion of dalliances, serious love affairs, urgent infatuations, and serial marriages that appeared to be endemic to the Yiddish theater world, not only between actors and their admirers, but also between the actors themselves. I wonder if you can comment on this and how it weaves its way into this. Uh this is wrong. <laughs> it sounds like I see Alex uh, voting for discretion there. Um, comment on it. Uh, Rumshinsky wrote in his memoir about, about how everyone was involved with everyone and people were pining for, for someone who was unattainable or possibly attainable. Uh, and that affected how they were behaving on stage. And uh, he just, thought that would be um, grist for his mill, you know. Uh, but it was actually Anshul Shore who wrote the libretto. Um, and he was a wonderful, really interesting uh, figure in Yiddish theater. Uh, who He was a kind of a jack-of-all-trades, a man of the theater who, who did everything. Uh, he was a script doctor. He was a director. He was an actor. He was a lyricist. He wrote libretti. I mean, he... he 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 did everything, um, and uh, uh, let's see. I was thought where was I taking what what uh, what he was going to say. Well, I can just jump in, Ron, if you want. This is Alex. Um, the if we take it to this particular show, um, you know, so that's that's the world that was happening. Um, very intense uh, world of the theater and all of the social relationships inside of it. Uh, but then that shows up in the story of this uh, operetta. Um, which you know Ron described as as the a combustible melodrama that could sound like Greek tragedy because um, it's a story in which um, a father falls in love with his son's uh, kind of bride to be the and the son is in love with two different women and there's so there's all these different kind of love triangles um, and uh, so they kind of in in a way recreated some of of the, the drama that existed behind the scenes on the Yiddish stage. Um, in this really kind of, uh, you know, combustible, uh, you know, to use the word again, um, story for for this operetta. And, and and if it sounds like a melodrama and it sounds like it's going to blow up, it's also a comedy. I mean, there are also comic figures. And in fact, in the end, there, there are no tragic outcomes. Every um, uh, Everyone manages miraculously to uh, land on their feet at the end happily ever after as as it were so, so no another, spoiler alert needed <laughs> it's okay another kind of just connection with the with the theater that they're you know taking inspiration from their world is that the main characters are all performing um an opera in the show um and so there's um the the composer who's writing a show that the, the the operetta is called Shira Shiram after the opera that the composer in the show is himself writing um and then the the main kind of um love pair uh 
are a Dave and Lily are actually the stars of this opera in the show. Um, and they perform a lot of the songs from it. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a show about a show, um, you know, reflecting the, the world of Yiddish theater uh, in the kind of behind the scenes, uh, you know, love triangles, um, but also in some of the kind of material of the day-to-day life of musicians. So I guess the question I'd have for both of you is what drew you to this and um, maybe what were any of the challenges, high points, um, and the collaborative process? So, I mean, I, I can start. Um, you know, I can say that Ron and I were both actually interested in this piece independently at different times. Um, and uh, when I I had found it, because we did a concert a few years ago um, at Evo talking about uh, or exploring the theme of the Song of Songs, um, the Shira Shiram, which is, you know, a wonderful book of the Bible of kind of erotic love poetry um and we we did a concert showing music from yiddish theater that explored the song of songs in some way or referenced it as well as um, classical music and contemporary music and we commissioned some new pieces it was a really um fun concert for me to just kind of get to know a lot of different music in our collections and one of the the pieces that i came across at that time was this operetta which of course is called Shira Shiram, um and it, but it's far from the only um yiddish theater piece to reference the song of songs in some way um, but it, that is in the title of the show. And we did a few songs from it on this concert. And I, and I just, I, I found it fascinating and I wanted to return to it. Um, and, you know, when thinking about a, a exciting project to use our archival materials at Evo and kind of, you know, we have hundreds of operettas in our collections um, that are just waiting to be reconstructed because they exist in manuscript forms and the manuscripts tend to just have the parts, um, not full scores. Um, they're not engraved. We don't have really good published, you know, edited material for it. Um, so it's a big project to do one of these shows, but we have hundreds of them. And I, you know, I really wanted to do something. And, and I thought back to this show that I had encountered um, in that concert. And I, I called Ron up and I said, you know, what do you think about doing this together? And, and we started collecting material and, and seeing that it was actually, you know, quite an interesting show. Um, and, and Ron can tell you a little more about his his interest in it. You know, even before I made that phone call, it was a show he was aware of and, and curious about. Um, yeah, I I can't tell you the first time I became aware of it. Um, it it might have been reading about Rumshinsky, or or it may have been the very first time I w- went to. Uh, I started working in his among his papers, which are held at UCLA. And I'm on the West Coast, so it's actually uh, something that that I've done n- numbers of times. I've spent quite a bit of time in Rumshinsky's papers, and, and they're extensive. It's many, many boxes. Um, but early on, I uh, I it became clear to me that there was that the oldest single, the oldest item among his papers though the oldest thing that he managed to save or that managed to be saved by then by his son and given to ucla were materials from shira shirin um it it's possible there's something older because i haven't i have not looked through every box and i haven't you know um and i haven't looked you know i haven't made a point of proving this fact but I was impressed that this was clearly the oldest thing, and I remember the first time I noticed it. It looks like it looked like it was not in good condition, and you know, uh, it had suffered uh, 
the, the ravages of time and and also the ravages of being used many many times for many performances you know and and things get very beat up um but i i knew it was there and um then at at some point i became aware of uh some radio scripts that were there among his papers and uh eventually i learned from uh, henry saposnik um the the founder of Kleskamp, um, Klezer pioneer, but also importantly, a radio scholar, Yiddish radio scholar and record producer, you know. Um, he made me aware of broadcasts that he had discovered uh, uh, of the Chunky Chocolate Theater of the Air on WEVD radio. In 1947, Rumshinsky conducted very abridged, very condensed versions of a bunch of his operettas on Saturday. I believe they were on Saturdays. They were on Shabbos, of course. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he he also did a uh, a couple of Goldfaden operettas and um, and one other Kol Nidre uh, uh, by, by Sharkonsky, but. Um, but mostly he did numbers of, of his shows and included among them were Shira Shirim. And once Henry, you know, you know, I had seen that there were these scripts and there was one for Shira Shirim, but then Henry uh, has since donated all these recordings, these radio uh, air checks uh, to Library of Congress. But, uh, but he had played it for me and I, and I, had a copy of the script that you that I was able to copy from UCLA, and it was it was, I don't know, it was history come alive. I was holding the script in my hand, not literally because I was holding a copy, but I was holding the script in my hand and listening to this announcer reading it, and it you know it felt like I was there. I mean, I, it, in a, in a very different way from anything else I'd truly anything else I'd ever experienced in, in researching Yiddish theater. Um, even though it was, you know, kind of silly and, and it was abridged and, you know, it was hokey radio that was filled with chunky chocolate commercials. And you know, still it was very important. And, and I knew that the music was there and I, um, I started thinking we need to do something. We, something needs to be done with this that could be, very interesting and i had imagined using the radio broadcast for something which may still happen i don't, I don't know but but then once alex and i started talking it seemed very real that we could do this um and as he mentioned that there you know there are orchestra parts but it's not there's not just one orchestra set of orchestra parts for for many of these dozens even hundreds of yiddish operettas there can be two or three or four or five different sets of parts that were used and no two are alike and there's no there's no authorized score so when i say no two are alike i mean they're not necessarily radically different but once one starts a, a reconstruction project there's an an enormous number of editorial decisions and, and that you have to make about well, which seems like it makes the most sense here. I mean, you don't necessarily do a cafeteria and take one this from that and this from that. You d you decide what is the 
what's the basis that we are going to be using. And then you try to, where things are missing or are ambiguous, you try to draw on the other sources to triangulate and help clarify what was supposed to be there. And in the case of, of Shira Shirim, there's this remarkable manuscript of Rumsh in it's Rumshinsky's manuscript, and it has all the lyrics and all the tunes, but missing a whole lot of none of the harmony and missing a whole lot of other stuff. But it became the basis for for what we did. And then we used these other th these other sources, including sources from Eastern Europe. All through the in the twentieth century, even before the First World War, but but definitely also between the wars, um, the, those uh, uh, New York New York had become the epicenter of Yiddish theater, really, and uh, shows that were playing in New York were copied assiduously by in in Eastern Europe and performed, um, and they were and often reproduced in pirated editions and so forth. Um, so there are these sets of parts. We have, th we used three different sets of parts from Poland and, and uh, Galicia um, that had been performed to, that we used to fill in or make, make clear what, what we needed to, you know, what, how, how to resolve ambiguities in Rumshinsky's manuscript. And there were many, I mean, there were many. Uh, and and um, and I'm distinguishing those from outright errors, <laughs> which there also were. So, one of the um, things that the process really brought to the fore for me that it was so interesting is just kind of the life cycle of these um, pieces. You know, where you know they're written and then and they're done in different adaptations and they go into different countries and um, you know, you know, looking at the differences between these different uh, versions that we have the things that people did in recordings, the things that they did later for the um, the Chunky Chocolate Theater of the Air, you know, kind of um, synoptic version and uh, and the the published libretto that it that has tons of changes and extra stuff. And, you know, it's um, because it because, you know, it seems it was not authorized um, and it was made in, in in was it in Warsaw, I, I yeah. believe. Yes. Um, and. So yeah, it's kind of just like brings to life the life cycle of these pieces to to trace all the different uh, kind of kind of extant material for it um, and how it, it it you know things shifted in different places and why that may have happened. It seems like this is a wonderful re result of exploring archives, being interested in all of this history, and then as you say, reclaiming it. And I would imagine it's really exciting to be able to stage this. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting. And, you know, we're working with um, for this concert performance, we're working with Bard um, Conservatory um, students, wonderful students. And and that's another really exciting part for us is, you know, giving an, a new generation access to this music. And for them, it's really exciting because um, it's as if it's totally new, you know, because no one, you know, who's alive today, you know, was involved in any of these performances um, and that's a magical thing to you know to to kind of create something new with this old material and to show that it, it can still live on and and be relevant for performances so it's it's a it's a lot of fun to to kind of make things with this material sort of what i call a guilty pleasure of our respective jobs uh -huh. um, to, to be able to bring these things out before i let you leave quick question um i wonder if you could speak a little bit about the place of opera operettas 
in Yiddish theater or performance, probably more correctly, um, you know, sort of both uh, from the point of view of the creators and also the audience. Music was just absolutely ubiquitous in Yiddish theater. And it really, it really began uh, with music, with musical events. Um, the, I mean, on the one hand, one of the, one of the um, progenitors of Yiddish theater was the Purim Spiel. So that, so there was that tradition, but the, the other current was that people were doing musical performances um, right uh, in folk style or not or funny and playing in, in taverns and um like the like the brother zingers uh, and i won't start getting into all that and who they were but um they began creating kind of proto uh, uh proto theatrical events built around these musical uh these musical and songs i mean ditties that that they would do and building out from that and then famously avram goldfaden uh um who had been doing that had been playing his his songs uh while he was doing other stuff he was a work he'd gone to rabbinical school he was publishing a newspaper he was doing this and that but all the time he was writing poetry and putting them melodies to them and performing and he um he's credited with having really given the impetus for uh, uh creating a um a regular professional that is to say people trying to earn their living uh yiddish musical theater um and uh and he was writing shows that had music and there was music everywhere strangely in the historiography of yiddish theater that was played down quite a bit because the the um the, there's an incredible figure a guy named Zalman Zilbertzweig who wrote a epic magisterial lifetime work called the Lexicon von Yiddischen Theater the the Lexicon or Encyclopedia of Yiddish Theater uh, that that in his lifetime uh he managed to publish six volumes over several decades of it um, and it, it, it's an incredible work, but for him, music was not the center. And, um, and so a musical scholarship about Yiddish theater didn't really develop. And in fact, there was a, a kind of animus on the part of um, musicologists. I mean, uh, and uh, people trained in European music uh, and, and who had prejudices about um what art music is, uh, looked down on Yiddish theater music. So there was not just, not only had it been neglected, but there was a, a bias against it. And, and so there was not really an active uh, musical scholarship about Yiddish theater. Um, I, I, I really have to credit Mark Slobin for being the first um, in the post-war generation to to really start doing it. And uh, I'm not very much younger than, than he, but um, he was a really important figure for me. Um, although I had kind of started independently down here in my bottom left-hand corner of the lower 48 states, um, uh, uh, just doing it my way uh, without, um, without very much methodology. And um, 
gradually had to start sharpening it as I, as, as I realized I can no longer have the excuse of being a young, uh, a, a young guy doing it. So um, for audiences, it, the music was paramount and everyone were singers. And as, as Mark Slobin has pointed out, so many of the creators of, uh, of Yiddish theater had been choir boys, Um Did I say that right? <laughs> that word anyway um and uh so it they had brought the training they received in the synagogue and they brought it to the to the yiddish theater uh and and that was also a link for their audiences that that it came from a space that they knew uh in their lives anything thank you add, yeah alex? i think I, oh, yeah alex me. do you have anything to add to that well i mean yeah i think ron really covered it but just in terms of operetta in particular i think there's also an interesting story about the the musical ambitions of these composers and how they kind of gradually um grew and one of the things that this particular show shira shiram kind of marks is it 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 is a turning point for Rimshinsky in which he, he aspires to um just to, to kind of uh, operetta proper um you know even though really, I mean, I'm not sure what you would call the shows before, if not operetta, they're musical dramas or, you know, music, the they're musical theater works. Um, but there, there's something about the aspiration of this show and going forward for Mshinsky, um, that where, where he's hoping for music to, to do an even greater role of storytelling. Um, and, uh, so, so there is something about, yeah, the shift that, that of, of, at this moment and going forward for, the term operetta. I don't know if that, does that make sense, Ron? Yeah, it does. Um, uh, you know, but as you were talking, I was also thinking about how much music there had been before this and how it had, how it had uh, played different roles. Um, some shows were, they were full of music. Uh, and, and I'll think we'll, we'll cite a show that came just two years before Shira Shiram uh, was a show called Dos Pintele Yid. Uh, the the essence of Jewishness uh, is what that is what we can translate that as um, uh, that that Boris Tomashevsky had produced in, in 1909. It was filled with music and by by a team uh, Arnold Perlmutter and Hermann Vol uh, were the were the paramount team of of uh, composers in New York in the in the aughts and and teens. Um, of the 20th century um in fact the show it it doesn't you don't find it in the sheet music to dos pintalied but when you go back into the manuscripts you see that the orchestra was doing all sorts of stuff that, that there were many numbers that were that were never published and in fact some didn't even have words but that there were there was a a a german a, a tyrolese number and a russian number and a french number and an italian number and i suddenly thought wait a second this is like doing the nutcracker this is coming straight out of this is this is coming out of russian ballet you know um and and it, this was not unfamiliar to these guys you know i mean they they were uh, very much around um uh russian music and russian nationalism and music um I'll, the last thought I'll I'll leave you with is that Goldfaden, you know, and um, and Rimsky-Korsakov and Tchaikovsky were 
contemporaries. We're pretty much exact contemporaries. I, I, I mean, well, Rimsky-Korsakov was born in 1844, Goldfaden in 1840, but they, but they both died, in, I think, in 1908. You know, um, I think Tchaikov was Tchaikovsky born in 1840. I mean, the same year as Goldfaden. So that nationalism was something that in music was something that was going around <laughs> everywhere in Eastern Europe. And Goldfaden was very explicit at the end of his life. He wanted to take the sound of Jewish music and create, and, and these are his words, a Jewish national opera. So that, that was his goal. And, um, and his audiences responded to it, you know, um, his, his most famous work is the operetta Shulamis, and the most famous song in it was Rojan Kismit Mandlin. And it's so important, and it's it became so important to audiences that we've totally forgotten where it came from. It be, it became a folk song. That's how integrated the music of the Yiddish theater was in the life of, of uh, Jews from Eastern Europe. Uh, if I could ask you to share um, for our listeners where they can learn more and where they can book tickets. And if you're like myself, you'll book them right away because I think it's going to be uh, quite a wonderful event. Um, great. Yeah. So if you go to Yivo's website, yivo.org, yivo.org um, slash calendar, um, or that you can see our whole event calendar. And this is happening on December 11th um, at our location in Manhattan. Um, the exact website for this is um, yivo.org slash sheer dash hashirim. Um, but in case that's a little tricky, just go to the the, the calendar um, and you can find it there. Um, and yeah, we'd love to we'd love to have you with us in person to to listen. Great. Um, well, thank you both for taking time to join me and uh, also to bringing this out. Um, it's great. And I will share with our audience that your writing in the program guide is also just enlightening, wonderful, and really makes the case for why I think this is going to be just such an exciting event. So thank you both and um, hope for more collaborations going forward before you've even put this one out. <laughs> thank you so much, Lisa. You have been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be well and be healthy.